0: If you think back to growing up, all of us had some kind of rules. Some of you are still growing up, so you know what that's like even now, right? Uh, Maybe they were house rules. Maybe it's something like take your shoes off when you come in the house. Maybe it was moral rules. We don't want you to lie. We don't want you to steal. Maybe it's things specific to your family. Here's how mom wants you to fold the towels or put away the laundry, right? These are all things that are specific to a particular household, that collection of those things, right? Let's say you go over to your friend's house. There is potentially a sense that things are a little bit jarring, things are a little bit different, because their particular set of all of those rules is probably going to be different than what you experience in your own house, right? Reading the book of Leviticus is a lot like that. It's going over to a friend's house that you don't know very well. Everything feels a little bit off or different. You don't know exactly why things are done the way that they are. You're not really sure. You don't plan to follow them yourselves. So at one point we might say, why bother to understand it if it doesn't apply today and if we are not going to follow them ourselves and if some of it doesn't make sense? And the answer is, that I want us to see that it's not just lots of rules or strange sacrifices or outdated rituals. Instead, the book of Leviticus teaches us many things, at least these three, if not more. It teaches us that God is holy. That's one of the big themes that runs through this book, particularly when we get to a passage like chapter 19. It teaches that uncleanness and sin interfere with us coming before God properly. And then it teaches us most of all how sacrifices deal with sin, anticipating the greatest sacrifice of Christ, which we just finished up looking at in the book of Hebrews. So let me give you a quick overview of where we're going to go in the book of Leviticus for the next month so that you kind of see where we're going and and we see how it fits together. Uh, In Leviticus 1 through 3, what we're going to look at today, we see burnt offerings a subset of which are grain offerings and peace offerings. All of these together are offerings that are offered up, burned on the altar before God. They are described as being a soothing aroma to the Lord. Then we see next week that there are sin and guilt offerings in Leviticus chapters 4-6. through A key phrase in those passages is the idea that there is forgiveness, or it will be forgiven him when a person offers these types of offerings for various kinds of offenses or uncleanness in God's sight. Then the next week, two weeks from today, we'll look at Leviticus 6 and 7 about how the priests were supposed to handle the various offerings that God had given them. And You say, well, why does that matter? Because God was very specific, very particular about the rules and regulations of how these offerings were to be handled. There's much description of it being a holy thing, that it's holy, that it's supposed to be handled in a particular way, that only particular people could touch it at certain points. And so that emphasis on God's holiness in connection with the offerings will set the backdrop for what we'll look at at the end of January, which is where all these things come together, the various kinds of offerings are offered the commissioning, the setting apart of Aaron and his sons is described in what seems to be kind of a flashback to the end of the book of Exodus. But we also see something else, and that is that two of Aaron's sons decide that they're not going to follow the things that God has laid out, and they receive death as a result of their disobedience. And so The description of the sacrifices, the importance of how they're handled, sort of all builds to that point in this big section here at the beginning of the book of Leviticus. Then we'll get into the more difficult part in February, which is why are there all these rituals and regulations and things to deal with leprosy and how men and women relate to each other and and all of these other sorts of things. We'll talk more about that. Don't worry, I don't plan for us to get bogged down in the details. Like I said just a moment ago, the goal is to see how the book of Leviticus emphasizes God's holiness, the effect that uncleanness and sin has on us coming before God, and the importance of sacrifices in these rituals in allowing people to properly approach God. And even at the end today, we'll see what this has to do with us today. So going back to today, Leviticus 1-3, through 3, God requires acceptable offerings. Why do I say this? Eight times here in this first three chapters, we see the phrase that a particular offering or sacrifice is a soothing aroma before or to that ascends to God. Now, we see that phrase, soothing aroma, and we might think, oh, a soothing aroma, something like pumpkin pie, something like a well-done steak, you know, those sorts of things, right? That's what to us might be a soothing aroma, Right. But the emphasis here is not necessarily that it smells good to us, because let's be honest, some of the sacrifices that they were offering, you know, burning grain on the altar, wouldn't have necessarily smelled good to the humans who were offering these sacrifices. The emphasis, though, instead, is an acceptable offering to God that deals with sin and potentially turns away His wrath. Why do I say this? Because we see the exact same language back in the book of Genesis, chapter 8. Right after the flood, Noah offers an offering that ascends in smoke to the Lord. It's described as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And right after that, God says, I will not bring judgment on the earth with a flood again as I have just before now uh, in the lifetime of Noah. And so I think with that background and also similar things we see later in the Old Testament, I think the emphasis here in the first three chapters is the offering needs to be acceptable to God. Not because God is an angry deity that just, you know, you've got to get on his good side, so you've got to give him the stuff that he wants, but rather because he is in fact God and there is in fact sin and this is the way that he said he should be approached to the people of Israel This is how they were supposed to bring offerings before him. So first of all, I think we're going to see that God gave specific instructions for the sacrifices. The first thing we see here is in chapter 1. We're just going to kind of work our way through the chapters in order. God required a perfect and a clean sacrifice. Let me give you some examples of this. First of all, we see in verse 3, in verse 10, and then again in chapter 3, that the offering, the animal that they brought for the offering, was supposed to be without defect. Now, when we see defect, we should think things like the animal wasn't supposed to have been attacked by a lion or by a bear or something like that or fell off the side of a hill and broke its leg and now its leg is lame or there's just there's something wrong with it. Now, we look at that and we might say, well, that seems kind of... Um, discriminatory toward creatures or people who have some sort of physical handicap or disability, right? That's not the point. The point is not that the animal is lesser because it has this thing. The point is that God is demanding perfection be brought to His presence and offered to Him as a sacrifice. A side effect of this that I think we often don't think about is if you are keeping... The imperfect sheep and goats and cattle as part of your flocks and offering the best of your flocks to God, what does that mean you have to do? It means you have to trust in God that He's going to continue to give good flocks. Because good animal husbandry says weed out the ones that aren't so good and only let the strongest ones have offspring, right? And God's saying to do the opposite, give me the best ones and depend on me to bless you, right? There's that implied, I think, in what God is doing here. Beyond the simple fact that God just says, here's what you need to do, right? And that's, to some extent, that's what we're going to encounter in the book of Leviticus. There are some things for which we don't necessarily have a clear explanation, but we can simply leave it at, this is what God required of the Israelites. And because He's their God, He has the right to require it of them. So first of all, it needed to be an offering that was without defect. Now you'll notice that in, or you may notice, that in chapter 1, the burnt offering is described that it needed to be a male animal, right? And the male animal could be a bull, it could be a sheep, it could be a goat, it could be a bird. Why might this be? There were different degrees of wealth in Israel. Some people might have had herds of cattle, some people might have had sheep, flocks of sheep and goats. Some people might not have had either and only been able to bring a bird for the offering, but God accepted all of those sorts of things as long as it met the requirements. In chapter 3, which we'll get to in a moment, the peace offering could be a male or a female uh, animal that was brought before God, and um, we'll talk more about that in a moment when we get there. So the first thing, without defect. Without defect. Second thing of the specific requirements God gives, without uncleanness. We see this, for example, in verse 9. When the animal, the bull, for example, is being cut up, its entrails, its intestines, and digestive system was supposed to be washed with water. The same was true of its legs. Now, this washing of water was not a hygienic thing, right? Because what's about to happen next? It's going to be burnt up on the altar. So it's not a hygienic thing per se, it is a ritual of cleansing to bring something that is clean before God. So there's that theme of clean and unclean. For a bird, rather than washing the crop, the craw of the bird, you know, if you have a chicken, chicken will swallow small pebbles. That will then grind up the food and it has this hard thing called a crop or a craw. They would just take that and they would set it aside. They would not wash it or or burn that as part of the offering. That is according to the description that is given in uh, verse 16. There was a special place, a place of the ashes, that if you're doing a ton of these sacrifices, what are you going to have? You're going to have a bunch of ashes. And all of the, the refuse, the extra ashes and things are going to be shoveled off the altar, still treated as holy because they're part of this offering that has been given to God and that they're going to be disposed of at a special place outside the camp. And these rites and rituals, this was one of the jobs of the Levites. Some of the Levites set up the tabernacle. Some of the Levites made the offerings. Some of the Levites cleaned out of the the ashes and took them outside the camp. There were all sorts of different jobs that different families of the Levites had to do. And uh, that, in fact, ties in with this idea of Leviticus, right? Because they were the tribe who were doing these things. So, first thing that was true of the offering had to be Without defect, second thing, had to be clean. So not only did God have specific requirements, but God also required a symbolic and a memorial sacrifice. We see this now in chapter 2. The first thing I want you to notice is one of the verses that Evan read for us was that these offerings were to be brought, grain offerings with oil and frankincense on them. And particularly as we come down to verse 13 they were also supposed to be offered with salt they say what's the big deal about salt extra biblically like in the literature of the day there's all these discussions of you know like hospitality in the middle east if you eat a meal with salt in it that you're not supposed to attack the people that you just had the meal with salt in it and all those things are true but i don't think that's the primary point in this passage it's not hospitality rituals, or those sorts of things. It is that the salt that they put on the grain before they burned it as an offering was to symbolize the covenant that they had with God. We see that in verse 13. The salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. What specifically that pictured about the covenant is less clear. It could perhaps be the fact that the covenant is permanent. It could perhaps be that this was associated with the giving of covenants. There are different ideas about why salt was associated with the covenant. But the important thing is that it is a symbol of their covenant with God. And so if they did not do this, it was a very serious thing. We'll talk more about that later. So basically, when they brought a grain offering, they would put salt on it. They would put oil on it. They would put frankincense on it. And then they would burn it with fire before the Lord. What was this symbolic, this memorial sacrifice, not supposed to have? It was not supposed to have leaven or honey. We see this in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Why should it not have leaven? Why should it not have honey? Leaven, I think, is a little bit more clear because it is often associated, not necessarily and automatically, with sin... But it is associated to some degree with corruption and in some places with sin, right? There's also echoes and overtones of perhaps the Passover. In the Passover, there was this idea of haste. There wasn't an opportunity for the bread to rise. There was a setting aside of all these old things from Egypt. There was a going out. So the feast of the Passover used unleavened bread. They were also supposed to offer to God unleavened flour or bread in these grain offerings. Now, when they brought offerings of first fruits, which is a whole other thing we'll talk more about in the book of Leviticus, God gives you ten bushels of grain and you bring the first bushel of grain to him. You could bring cakes or bread or loaves of bread that had leaven in them and offer them to God which would then go to the support of the priest. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But, for the offering that was going to be burned by fire and ascend to God, it couldn't have any leaven in it. Why was there not allowed to be honey? Well, the honey could be, uh, the same word is sometimes used both of honey that bees would make or of nectar from plants, uh, not plants, fruit, right? The juice of fruit. Now, There are some people who've said, well, the point of this is, like leaven, leaven is associated with fermentation, so that's bad. And the juice of of, uh, fruit is associated with fermentation, so that's bad. But here's the problem. Later on, we see that wine is allowed to be poured out as an offering before God. So I think we have to be careful as we put all of these things together and not jump to conclusions. So the short answer would be, This is one of those things where to the extent that I have studied the book of Leviticus to this point, there's not a clear answer as to why God said you can't offer me honey as a burnt offering. This is where it rubs us the wrong way. Why? Because we want a reason for it, right? Why can't I do that thing? And I'll take you back to what I said a few moments ago. God was the God of the Israelites. God had the right to say to the Israelites you're not going to do this thing because it's associated with pagan worship practices. Or he has the right just to say, you're not going to do this thing, and maybe later on they realize that it's associated with pagan worship practices, or maybe they don't. They're simply obeying God because he's their God, and this is what he requires of them. And so there are some things that I think we can answer about the why that God made them do something, and there are other things where... There are many ideas but no clear answer and sometimes we just have to say this is what God required of his people. So, God had specific instructions. No defects, no uncleanness. It's supposed to be a symbolic and a memorial sacrifice. Quick aside, when it says a symbolic and a memorial sacrifice, is there any significance to that when we come over to the New Testament, particularly when we think about the Lord's Table? There is association with bread bread and memorial, and Jesus, and all those sorts of things. I think there's implications and, and parallels between those pictures that we don't want to miss when we come to the Lord's table. Even though they're not the exact same thing, what was happening here anticipated what happens now. We, too, have a memorial that is required of us. We, too, have something that God requires of us. We'll talk more about that at the end here. I think another point, especially that we see from chapter 3 is that God required the best parts and the life of the sacrifice. Why do I say the best parts? Well, there was that those couple of verses that Evan read where at the end of verse 16 it says, All fat is the Lord's. Well, that takes us back to, uh, in chapter 3, verse 3, the peace offering was supposed to involve the fat around the, the stomach area The fat that's around the kidneys, the fat that's around the liver, all of this fat that is in the animal around all of its organs was supposed to be burnt up as an offering to God. Why? So there's an emphasis for health reasons in our day about having lean meat sometimes, right? But if you've ever had a steak or a hamburger, it needs a certain percentage of fat to taste really good, right? That holds the flavor. When you look at what God is requiring of them, He is requiring of them the best parts of the animal that's being offered. What happens later on, for example, with the judge, um, there's Eli, Eli, in the books of Samuel. He has two sons. Do you know what his two sons did? His two sons, instead of saying, we're going to be content with whatever meat God gives us, they're like, we want the best cuts of meat. And so they would, somebody would bring their offering, bring the sacrifice, and they'd be like, nope, we're going to take our cut first. We're going to take the prime rib or the whatever else, right? The filet mignon. And we're going to take that, and we're going to go eat that. And then God can have what's left. That's backwards of what this passage is saying. This passage is saying, give God the best part of the animal, and he's still going to provide for you, but the best part belongs to God. What's the significance then of the blood? Blood is associated with the life of the animal. So for uh, meat to be kosher for a Jewish person, the blood has to be drained out of it in a particular way, right? And that's because they're very serious, even today, about not following this prohibition against eating blood. Why were they not supposed to eat the blood? Well, blood in Leviticus is associated with cleansing, with atonement, with dealing with sin, right? So, for example, we see in chapter 1 and verse 5, "...the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle it on the altar." We see the same thing in verse 11. We see this in a number of places throughout these three chapters that the blood is either poured out or sprinkled on the altar. That should remind us of something from the book of Exodus, which is when the Israelites were about to come before God and God was going to meet with them at Mount Sinai, what happened? Moses sprinkles the blood of the sacrifices on the people to cleanse them, to prepare them to meet God. So here's the basic picture. Blood represents life. Life is given as a covering, a temporary cleansing for sin, which looks to the final and perfect and complete sacrifice of Christ that is a permanent covering for sin for those who come to God through Jesus Christ. And so why did God not want them to eat the blood? Because they were profaning and making light of this thing that was precious anticipating what is most precious, the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice. And there's probably also elements of the fact that pagan religious ceremonies involved all sorts of things that were done with the blood of the animal in gross and perverse ways, and God didn't want them associated with any of that. But that was more secondary. The main point was blood is life. Is given for cleansing and covering and dealing with sin. So don't make light of it. It's not for you. It's for God. So God gives all of these requirements. No defects. No uncleanness. With salt and oil and frankincense. Without leaven or honey for the grain offerings. Give me the fat. Give me the blood. It's not for you. It's for me. What was God accomplishing by the sacrifices? Well, an obvious one that maybe it's not as obvious if we we haven't sat down and thought about it, is chapter 2, verse 3 says this, The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy. Verse 10, The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy. So a portion of it, a handful of it, is offered up to God on the altar, burned with fire, is gone, except for the ashes, right? But what is left becomes food for Aaron and the rest of the priests the Levites were not going to have um, large portions of land in the land of Israel. It seems that there was some degree of flocks and herds that they were allowed to pasture on other lands, right, of, of other tribes. And they had specific cities in the land in which they could live, but they didn't have big open fields of land to grow grain. So what does God do to provide for them? the offerings that the people bring to God, some portion of that becomes the provision for the priest, and so God takes care of them and meets their needs in that way. Furthermore, there is an element in which these offerings are not just providing for the priest, even as they honor God, but they are dealing with sin. As I said just a moment ago, particularly discussing this idea of the life being in the blood, this idea we see a phrase in chapter 1 and verse 4, make atonement. Uh, this idea is going to be throughout the rest of the book of Leviticus. There is an atonement, there is a covering of sin that is accomplished by the bringing of these sacrifices to God. So God had all these rules for the sacrifices. God's accomplishing specific things with the sacrifices. What does that have to do with you and me? Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that we are no longer to bring these sacrifices to God. For a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is, to my knowledge, none of us are Israelites, and so we're not obligated to do it because we're not part of the group that God required to do this. More importantly, even if we were, we are not to bring these sacrifices before God because, as we just got done looking through in the book of Hebrews, Jesus fulfilled all of these rules and regulations and requirements in a way that means that We are freed from following the law that was given through Moses to the people of Israel. And instead, we are held to what the Bible speaks of as the law of Christ. This is important to keep in mind because there are some people who say, if I'm not under the law of the Old Testament, I can do whatever I want. And that's not what scripture teaches. Take, for example, what Paul says in the book of Romans. The fact that you've been freed from obedience to sin doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want and go back to sin, right? If you're freed from sin, you have an obligation to something, to someone else. You were slaves of sin. Now you're slaves of righteousness. The law showed you your sinfulness because you couldn't keep it. And the law of Christ upholds what God has required and expected of people from the very beginning, To love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment, which will not pass away. What then does this look like? It looks like, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, Paul says this. Speaking of Christ's sacrifice, he says... Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Does that have more significance now? Having just seen in Leviticus 1-3, fragrant aroma to God, Christ is the final and full burnt offering in our place. So what then are we supposed to do? Ephesians 5 says, walk in love even as Christ loved us. So that's one of the ways that it looks like for us to live in light of what Jesus has done in fulfillment of what Leviticus 1-3 talks about. A second example of this, I think, is seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 7, a verse that in Sunday school you might have memorized. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And I would link that with Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, where he said this, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So there is a degree to which giving to meet the needs of fellow churches and fellow church members is a fulfillment of what God expects of us in connection and, and all of the things associated with Leviticus 1-3. to In 2 Corinthians 9... Paul was talking about the offering he was giving, he was collecting for other churches in need. And in Philippians 4, he was talking about how the Philippians had met his own personal need, right? So, loving one another, having a giving and a generous spirit toward one another and toward fellow believers, those two things are tied to what the sacrificial system is supposed to inspire us to do today, right? And then the third thing, and perhaps the most important thing, uh, is seen in a familiar, couple of familiar passages. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then also what we just finished looking at in the book of Hebrews. So let me read for you Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then I'll remind you of the passages in Hebrews that we just looked at in the middle of December. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And then Hebrews 13:15 through 16, through him then through Jesus let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for which with such sacrifices God is pleased. God doesn't want you to bring him an animal. God doesn't necessarily want you to bring him his bank account, although giving to meet needs in the church and supporting missionaries and all that is part of his work. God is primarily and first and foremost concerned about you bringing Him yourself. So think about Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Think about the picture in the Old Testament. The fire consumes the offering. Think about the fact that we are now the sacrifice in Romans chapter 12. What is Paul and the author of Hebrews together with what we see in the book of Leviticus calling us to do and be? to be an offering, a sacrifice of all of who we are and what we possess, given to God to be freely consumed by Him for His glory as a testimony to the work that He is doing in the world. The Israelites brought animals and were constantly reminded as they brought those animals and that grain and gave those offerings that there was sin that needed dealt with That God was holy, that there was fire and burning and blood associated with these rituals of cleansing. That seems foreign and distant to us, but even in what we'll do here in just a few moments, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus died in the place of sinners to deal with God's wrath, to cover our sin. If we are trusting in Jesus, we have Jesus' blood having dealt with our sin, Him being the burnt offering in our place. Him being the one who has appeased God's wrath in our place. And the result of that is that we then give ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Not to pay Him back. Not to make atonement because that's already been accomplished in what Jesus has done. But because God wants us to be both priest and sacrifice in one person as small pictures of Christ and who he is and what he's done to point the world around us to God's wrath, their sin, the forgiveness that's found in Jesus, and the holiness that God calls all of us to live in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we have looked at these things together, May our hearts be stirred by them to see how beautifully you have put together your word. Many of these things seem strange and distant from our everyday experience. We don't like talking about blood or death or sacrifice or ritual or all of these sorts of things. And yet, they are a necessary thing for us to understand, that we might understand how great the work is that Jesus has done and how great the work is that you call us to do as we live for you as our lives are consumed by you for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.